The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. So uh, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, we have... Uh, a discourse, uh, actually a, a little argument that's going on between some religious leaders about the question of marriage. Now, let me just tell you up front here, I recognize that not everybody in this room is married. How many of you are currently married? Raise your hand. Fantastic. Put your hands down. Now, let me tell you a little thing here. Um, Todd mentioned that we used to travel and do itinerant ministry. We did that for 15 years. We were homeless. We lived with that family you saw on the screen in an RV travel trailer. Um, and uh, exciting life. We just parked it on church parking lots. And so every week we had a different home, different place to live. We were just kind of a traveling circus type thing. So um, our trailer, let me tell you something about our trailer. Our trailer, you know, it kind of sits up off the ground because you got wheels underneath it. And so every morning when you come out, you kind of have to go down a set of steps, very similar to these steps here. The trailer's set off the ground. And, and um, in cold weather climates, maybe not knowing if there had been some rain that had fallen and frozen on these metal steps, that if you weren't paying attention, um, you could easily kill yourself uh, coming out of the trailer. And I remember one particular morning, I, I was running late, and so I was scurrying around. I threw open the door, and I hit those steps. And all I remember next is seeing my feet fly up in front of my face, and I landed with all of the weight of my body on this elbow. Now, I didn't quite know what happened. I don't remember everything that happened after that. All I know is that was about 15 years ago. And to this day, if I touch my elbow on a particular place, there is searing pain that goes up into my brain and tells me there's probably some nerve damage right there. My elbow is hypersensitive because of some past injury and damage that was caused. When we talk about the subject of marriage, I realize I am running the risk of touching a nerve center for some of you that have had some past damage and some past pain in this area. And for me to even use the word marriage in church this morning, some of you are ready to fold it up and walk out. You're saying this doesn't apply to me because I'm not married. Or I had one of those I traded it in, it didn't go well for me, and, and you're just checking out on the whole issue of marriage. And so there's a lot of different people here. I see some young people here. I would think that probably for most of the young people here, if you've never been married, you probably have as a life goal at some point to meet the person that you would be able to enter into a covenant committed relationship where there's trust and there's love and there's legacy that you leave to another generation. That's probably a pretty high goal for you. For some of you, you tried that, it didn't work well, and some of you are single again. It's interesting, I meet with singles who have never been married, and a lot of times I find out their number one prayer request on their, their prayer list is, God, would you please send me a mate? And I always try to tell them, do you understand that I also see the prayer request of some people who are married, and their number one prayer request is, God, would you please allow me to be single again? because this is so hard and I don't like the way this is going. And so what happens many times is we look to marriage to provide something that God never intended for it to provide. 
And so this morning, we're going to get a glimpse of what marriage is all about. Did you know that marriage is at the very center of the Bible message? The Bible only has one story. It starts with a marriage on the first page, and it ends with a marriage on the last page. The Bible's one story is this. There was a father who sent his son to win a bride through love, sacrificial love, and that one day they would live together through all eternity. Did you know that's the one message of the Bible? And so marriage is at the very heart of what we believe about our relationship with God and what this book teaches us. So we're gonna look at this issue of marriage. And I realize that may be a little painful, but we're gonna see it here from God's perspective. Let's see it here in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse one. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, stop right there. You realize we just jumped into the middle of the story because we don't know what these sayings are. So if you were just to kind of glance back at Matthew 18, don't do that right now, but let me just give you a little summary. You know what Jesus is talking about? Those sayings he was talking about? It was all about forgiveness. It was all about temptation. It was all about hurt. And it was all about humility. That's what he'd been teaching on. If you're gonna be married, do you know what you're gonna need? You're gonna need to know what to do with temptation, what to do when you get hurt, how to be humble, and how to forgive so that you can have a legacy and a lasting relationship. After he'd finished these sayings, it says in verse one, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, verse two, and large crowds followed him. They were so impacted by his teaching on forgiveness that they followed him. They wanted to hear more. And in verse two, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. I don't know what you brought into this place this morning. I don't know how much pain you've experienced in your past related to marriage or any other issue. But did you know that Jesus is all about healing your brokenness? Whatever you've gone through, no matter how badly you have sinned, no matter how much people have sinned against you, Jesus healed them there and Jesus can heal you here if you'll bring him your brokenness. So in verse three, we're introduced to another crowd of people. These were big religious theologues named Pharisees. Verse three, and Pharisees came to him and tested him. Now, Anybody here in school? Any, are you still in school? You have some classes. Anybody going to have any tests this week in school? All right. Some of you are looking like, I can't remember. I should have studied. I need to check when I get home because there may be a test coming up this week. Now, I don't know about you, but my teachers, as, as much as they didn't always create a warm, fuzzy life for me, I knew when they gave me a test, they wanted me to pass the test. So I know some of you don't really don't believe that about your teachers, but it's true. They want you to pass the test. You, ask this, you answer this question for me. Do you think the Pharisees, that when they asked Jesus the questions and gave him a test, do you think the Pharisees wanted Jesus to pass the test? Or do you think the Pharisees wanted him to fail the test? They wanted him to fail. So they asked him a really hard question. At least what hard for them, not hard for Jesus. It, the question is this. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife 
for any cause. Now, let me tell you why they thought that was a hard question. There was uh, a debate going on in that culture among the religious teachers about what a man could divorce his wife for. And one of the schools of thought is that you could divorce your wife for any reason. If she burned the toast, that was cause for divorce. And so they were looking for ways to minimize their commitment in marriage. That's the first point of our message this morning. Understand this morning, my marriage is being minimized. And that's what these guys were doing. They were looking for a way to minimize God's standard of marriage. God's standard of marriage is this. He wants you to enjoy an intimate, durable, permanent, lifelong relationship in the context of a covenant committed relationship. And these Pharisees were looking for a way to put a termination date on that kind of commitment. They wanted to know what is lawful? How can we reduce this thing? My marriage is being minimized. Have you noticed in our culture that people are trying to minimize marriage? Marriage is being minimized from the outside. For instance, there is more divorce. The divorce rate today is nearly twice what it was in 1960. And some people say, you know what, there's good news. People, the divorce rate is actually declining in our culture. Did you know that? Oh, that, that, that's reason to celebrate. Why do you think it's declining? Because there's less marriage. People are minimizing even the concept of marriage. And they're, 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 they're making it so that we, we don't even enter into lifelong covenant relationships anymore. Over 72% of adults were married in 1960. But today, less than half of adults are choosing to get married. I was born in 1967. I do not know what my arrival on this planet did to corrupt everything, but it was around that time that everything started going in the toilet related to culture and family values and marriage. And so I, I'm sorry, I, I apologize. I don't know what my arrival did, but it was around this time. It was on my watch. It's been in my lifetime that all these changes have occurred. Because there's more divorce, because there's less marriage, there are more children growing up without parents. In 1970, 89% of all babies were born to married biological parents. But today, only 60% of children are born into a family where bio mom and bio dad are married. That's what's changed. You may have noticed in our family picture a few minutes ago, one of my children is not like the others. Did you notice that? That's because little Scott, little nine-year-old Scott, was a homeless boy in our area that we got to know, and we found out that Scott never knew who his dad was. His mom had seven children from four different dads, and uh, there's drug abuse involved, there's homelessness, there's, there's all kinds of issues, and we were able just in the last three months to actually adopt Scott into our family. So he's getting a Can you imagine what's going through his brain watching this one guy and this one girl live out their lives together with all the bio children and now he's inserted in the midst of that. His mind is being blown in a different kind of culture. And do you think that it's probably a little healthier for him in our home than it was on the streets working through whatever issues his mom? And so again, as part of our responsibility, we need to understand marriage is being minimized. Number four, there's more pessimism about marriage in our culture. Because so many people, so few people have actually seen marriage work, 
People are like, man, I don't even think it, it, it functions anymore. I, I just think it's obsolete in our society. And while that may be uh, uh, the reality that less people are getting married, do, do you know this? By far, the greatest percentages of divorces happen to people who marry before the age of 18, who have dropped out of high school, who have had babies before they get married. And so the reality is, if you are a reasonably well-educated person with a decent income and you come from an intact family that actually values religious interaction with one another and with God, and you marry after the age of 25 without having a baby first, your chances of divorce are minuscule. That's the reality. When we do it God's way, we have a much better chance of succeeding. But, and some of you say, well, what about all these people in marriage that are unhappy? I mean, you wouldn't want these people to go through their lives unhappy. So why don't we just let them start over? Do you know that studies tell us that of marriages that report they are either unhappy or extremely unhappy in their marriages. If those couples stay together for five years, five years later they report their marriages are either happy or extremely happy. Because marriages that end in divorce and marriages that stay together for a lifetime essentially face the same problems. But if we press through the problems and we lock arms together, then we can work through those things and it actually has the effect of binding us together rather than driving us apart. Marriage is good for you. Turn to your neighbor and look them in the eye and tell them, marriage is good for you. Do it right now. Some of you really don't believe this. Did you know that married people live longer than single people? Did you know that married people are physically healthier, show fewer signs of mental illness? Married people make more money, build more wealth, have better sex more often than single people do. Marriage is good for you, okay? <laughs> Marriage is good for you. Did you know that divorced men are nearly twice as likely as married men to die from heart disease, stroke, hypertension, and cancer? The chances of a middle-aged single man making it to his 65th birthday are six in 10. The chances of a middle-aged married man making it to his 65th birthday are 90%. Marriage is good for you, okay? And that's why God designed it and gave it to us as a gift. Marriage is being minimized. People are minimizing even the very definition of marriage. I talk to young people today and I ask them about what kind of relationships and what kind of marriages they want to have. They say, well, we, we kind of have a marriage that's, that's like this. It, it, it's a union of two people who commit to romantically loving and caring for one another and sharing the burdens of domestic life and their relationship is conditioned on the feelings they have for one another. Doesn't that sound cute? I just gave you the plot line of every romantic comedy that's ever been produced in Hollywood, okay? But what is marriage? We could say it this way. Traditionally, marriage is the legal union of a man and a woman who make a permanent, exclusive commitment to one another that is naturally filled, fulfilled by bearing and raising their children together. And that relationship is conditioned 
on a promise that they make to one another and to God. And so let's unpack that a little bit. That's no longer the definition that most of us are using because our marriages have been minimized. Secondly, we need to understand my marriage has a maker. Let's let's see how Jesus answered the question here that the Pharisees asked. Remember the Pharisees asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus answered their question in verse four. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. So Jesus refers to a book. At one time, there was somebody that wrote something down in a book. Where could these Pharisees have read that statement? Anybody know? Second page of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus is quoting from the first page of the Bible. Now, these Pharisees knew that verse. In order to be a Pharisee, you had to know your Bible. They knew the verse. They just hadn't been using it as authoritative in in their lives. Jesus elevates the authority of God's word to trump whatever philosophy or school of thought that they had been using to minimize their marriage. Jesus elevates the original design of marriage. And notice he said, marriage was something that was created. It has a creator. My marriage has a maker. Do you believe the first two pages of your Bible? I mean, do you believe it was literally, historically true? There was a literal, historical husband named Adam who was married to a literal, historic wife named Eve. And God brought her to the man. God initiated the institution of marriage. When Adam was alone and God said, it is not good for men to be alone. How many of you ladies still agree with that statement? It is not good for this man to be alone, right? And one day Adam figured it out. He's like, yeah, probably, I'm, I'm a little lonely down here. God created a perfect helpmeet and brought her to the man. Notice the Bible says God didn't create women to meet Adam's need. He created a woman because a man only needs one. So he created one woman to meet Adam's need and God put them together in this relationship and Jesus refers all the way back to that. That is the standard for marriage. One man, one woman, one lifetime. That was something that God made. And if we don't, if we throw out the first couple of pages of the Bible and we replace it with whatever we read in our eighth grade biology book, then what we would see is like, hey, you know, everything's just kind of evolving And so marriage is kind of evolving and it can just kind of continue to evolve. Or we can say, you know what? It was something that was created and it was something that was handed to us as an act of God. Here's what we need to understand. Marriage was designed by and is defined by God. God is not just the designer of the institution of marriage. Let's make it personal. God is the initiator of your marriage. God is still in the business of bringing a woman to a man and initiating that relationship. You know what that means? If it's initiated by God, I have no right to terminate what God has initiated. That's what Jesus is gonna tell them later. Don't separate something that God put together. So it's designed by God and it's defined by God. So that's on a personal level, but what, What happens when you have a collection of people in community? 
or maybe in a province or maybe in a nation? Should we, should we somehow legislate things related to marriage? Should government be in the marriage business? That's a hot topic today. Here's what I think the Bible would, would tell us to do. Marriage is recognized and regulated by the laws of people who want to invite God's blessing on their nation. Marriage is recognized and regulated by the people and their laws who want to invite God's blessing on their nation. Let me put it this way. I have people come up to me all the time as I'm talking on marriage, especially of the younger generation. And they say things like this. Trent, we don't need a piece of paper to prove we're married. You know what I say? I agree. I like, you're exactly right. Your, that piece of paper doesn't make you married any more than my wedding ring makes me married. And it doesn't mean I'm not married when I take it off. Okay? Because marriage is not about a piece of paper. It's not about a, a piece of metal on a ring. What it's about is a promise. But what the piece of paper does and what the wedding ring does is it is the announcement that there have been promises made. People that say, we don't need a piece of paper. I say, try that at your mortgage company. <laughs> I want to buy a house. Okay, um, I'll pay you. I'll pay you monthly for the next 30 years. You know what the bank's going to look at you and say, um, just, just sign that right there. Why? Because they want a record of your promise. So that when the house is falling apart, and it doesn't look as good as it did on the day that you bought it, they can remind you, see the promise? Pay up, right? And if you are married, you want your spouse to have a record of his promise. Because on the day that you're not looking as good as you did on your wedding day, and they find somebody else that looks a little better, you do not want this person to say, I don't remember making a promise. I mean, that was a long time ago. You want to hold up the piece of paper. And say, See that right there? You signed, and so you made promises. You're going to fulfill the promises. You, want, you know what you want to do? You want to throw a big party. You want to send out an invitation to everybody you ever met, and you want as many people showing up as you can so that they can hear the dude and the girl make the promise so that when they forget, those people can say, hey, I was there. I saw it, and I'm going to hold you to your promise. Stay in this thing, work it out, forgive and forbear. You, you want that, don't you? So do you need a piece of paper? You want the piece of paper because you want it on the records that the promises have been made. Let me put it this way. I have a friend who, who he owns a Chevrolet dealership. And about two months ago, um, he handed me the keys to a 2015 Corvette and said, take it for a spin. <gasps> I hopped in this thing. Boom, boom, you know. And you know what? I thought, you know what? I'm an American. It's all about freedom. You know? And and we, we we're the and, and so I thought, I'm I'm gonna drive this thing however I want to drive it. And so I found a school zone. And I raced through the school zone at 100 miles an hour in my Corvette. How many of you think I did that? I didn't do that. You know why? Because there's some smart people that have regulated how fast I can drive 
in the presence of children. And so they expect me to limit my freedom for the common good of all. That's what we do when we talk about marriage. We limit the definition of who can participate in marriage so that the children don't get burned in the process. Got that? You say, ah, I still don't believe I need a marriage license. Try that um, when you have a 16-year-old son who wants to drive a car and says, I, I don't need a driver's license. I know how to drive a car. You, you want the guy to go down, learn how to drive the car, and drive it according to the regulations because it benefits us all when 16-year-olds limit their freedom driving their cars, right? You expect people to do that. And so as a, as a group of people, we want God's blessing and we want, to, we want our laws to reflect what God says about marriage. Now, I realize for the most part, we've lost that battle in the culture right now. But as Christians, we don't need to capitulate to what the culture does. We want God's blessing on our marriages as well. So my marriage is a maker. Thirdly, my marriage, had, it needs the right motivation. My marriage needs the right motivation. So Jesus tells them, haven't you read what God has said back in the first couple of pages of the scripture that he who created them in verse four made them male and female. Jesus says in verse five, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Verse six, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, that word means glued, bonded, welded together. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Verse seven, and they said to him, test question number two, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're still looking for a loophole. They're still trying to minimize marriage. Now, there's only one command in Deuteronomy chapter 24 that this is referring to, and it has nothing to do with divorce. Moses never commanded anybody to get a divorce. He allowed some divorce because the culture had so minimized marriage, men were divorcing for any reason and they were abusing the women. And so Moses regulated the divorce through a permit to, to, to protect those who were being burned by it. So in verse eight, Jesus said to him, because of your hardness of heart, underline those words, hardness of heart, Moses allowed, not commanded, he allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So, so what's gonna keep us from getting a divorce? We have to ask the right question. The question that the Pharisees asked revealed the condition of their heart. Now, let me tell you something. When Jesus brought the heart into this conversation, he introduced a category that the Pharisees had no ability to understand. With the Pharisees, it was all about rules, regulations, legal boundaries. And Jesus said, I want to get deeper than rules and regulations. I'm gonna tell you what your problem is. You're not getting a divorce because you have a lack of laws 
you're getting a divorce, you're wanting a divorce because your marriages have a lack of grace. And so laws don't prevent divorce. Grace prevents divorce. If you're married here today, or if you've ever been married, your marriage is either based on the Pharisees' questions, what is lawful, what can terminate my marriage, or it's based on grace. Let me show you the difference, okay? In a performance-based relationship or a law-based relationship, we ask the question, is it lawful to get a divorce? Things are getting hard. I wonder if I now have grounds for divorce. That was the Pharisees' question. But in a grace-based marriage, here's the question we ask. Is it graceful to forgive and forbear? Instead of asking what causes marriages to end, Jesus wanted them to ask what could cause marriages to endure as hard as it is. And the answer is grace. In our culture, we like to say, you know what? You should find someone you love and you should marry them. Love, marry the one you love. But in a grace-based marriage, here's what we talk about. Love the one you marry. It's not, it's, it's, not, um, it's not love that holds your marriage together. It's marriage that holds your love together. And so we embrace what God has given as marriage. But my marriage needs the right motivation. So he talks about the hardness of our hearts. So let me ask you the question, what makes your heart hard? Your heart gets hard when it's no longer moldable and shaped by God. When you get hard and crusty and you're not open to God shaping your heart anymore. And when your heart gets hard, you lose the ability to feel and to give love. Your ability to love and receive love actually reveals the true condition of your heart, whether it's soft and tender or whether it's hard and crusty. And your ability to avoid divorce has very little to do with the performance of your mate. Your ability to avoid divorce has everything to do with whether or not your heart is soft. And so the Pharisees asked for an escape from their commitment to stay married. And the reason was because something had happened to their heart. And that's why just teaching God's laws about marriage and divorce will not prevent anyone in this room from getting a divorce. It's more about the condition of your heart. So you really don't know what's going on in your heart until you face some hard times in your marriage. So what you have to do to keep your heart soft is this. Stop looking to your mate to meet the drives and the values and the appetites of your heart. You have to look to something outside of your marriage to get the needs of your heart met. And instead of trying to ask your mate to meet those needs, look to something outside, namely God. So how do you soften your heart? We have to stop looking at love like it's a noun. We, we like to talk about love. We think about love in terms of falling in love or I just don't feel love anymore. It's, stop talking about love as a noun. 
and start talking about love as a verb. Stop asking someone to noun you and ask what you can do to verb someone, all right? And what you will find is when you start verbing someone, loving someone, you will find that you feel nouned. Got it? Our heart is our love factory, but if it's closed down and hardened up and everything's rusted up because we've got hardness of heart, you're not gonna feel anything. And the, the answer to that is not to expect a feeling to be sparked, but it's rather to do something and then you will find that the noun comes after that. Here's the fourth thing and we'll be done. My marriage preaches a message. You say, oh, I could never preach like Pastor Todd or you, Trent. I just, no, listen, your marriage is going to preach and reach people that Todd and I will never touch. Your marriage preaches a message. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, by the way, I didn't read verse nine. Let me read that. It says verse nine, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So this, this idea of sexual immorality, the actual Greek word that's used there is the word pornea, which is the word we get our word pornography from. It's any sexually explicit activity outside of the marriage. And what Jesus is saying here. That is the tangible evidence that your heart has crusted over and gotten so hard that you would actually go be unfaithful sexually outside of the covenant relationship that you'd made. That's the evidence that your heart has grown so hard. So in verse 10, the disciples are listening to this. All right, can you imagine being the disciples listening to this conversation? So you got the Pharisees on one side, you got, the, you got Jesus over here, and it's like a tennis match. And the Pharisees are like, score. You know, it's like, mm, good question. How are you gonna answer that? Mm, good answer. What do you think? So they're watching this tennis match. And finally, one of these guys pops up and says in verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. All of a sudden, these guys realized that Jesus was elevating the bar of what was expected, that your marriage is to be an intimate, durable permanent relationship that lasts a lifetime. And these guys, that, that sounds impossible. If I'm gonna have to exercise grace, if I'm gonna have to forgive my wife for burning the toast, if I'm gonna have to forgive all kinds of different things in order for this marriage to endure, I think I, I, it'd just be easier just to kind of be an individual and kind of, that women are complicated, you know? And, and these guys are like backing away from it. And Jesus says, you know what? It is a little complicated. In verse 11, he said, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. And in other places, in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, we read that there's a high calling of people that would say, you know what? I'm gonna use all my available energy and time and emotion to serve the kingdom of God because marriage is complicated. Not everybody can receive this. Not everybody should be married. But if it's given to you, you embrace it and you understand what it is and you live it out in the context of grace. So just to finish here, let, let's just kind of conclude the whole weekend. Some of you have been here the whole weekend for the marriage conference. Can I just kind of wrap this up? If you were to take everything the Bible has to say and smash it together in one sentence. How would we answer the question, what is marriage? You ready for it? Here it is. 
Marriage is a holy covenant initiated by God and conditioned on an irrevocable promise to pursue oneness with an imperfect person of the opposite sex for a lifetime for the glory of God. Did you get that? Did you fill in all those blanks? Would you like me to slow down and unpack that a little bit? Let's do that, okay? First of all, marriage is a holy covenant. Now, the word covenant is a word we don't hardly even use anymore outside of church. If you're a businessman, if you interact with people, you might negotiate and sign a contract, right? It's like, I, you pay me $100,000 and I'll put an addition on your house, right? If you don't pay me the $100,000, I'm not gonna do the house thing. If you don't build the house, I'm not gonna pay. So, so then it, if, if one person doesn't fulfill their side of the bargain, it lets the other person off the hook. That is not marriage because all of us are at times going to fail in our obligations to our marriage. A covenant relationship is one that is covered by grace. Let me ask you a question. Do you want God, do you want to be in a relationship with God based on a contract or based on a covenant? A covenant, and it's exactly what God holds out to us. Because if my relationship with God was based on my ability to meet the terms of the contract, I'm never making it. So a covenant says this, I am going to love you and pursue you in spite of yourself in spite of what happens. In Malachi chapter two, the last book in the Old Testament, this prophet is going before the nation and the people are asking the question, God, why do you not hear our prayers? Why do you not accept our offerings? Why do you seem so far away? Why is our nation crumbling? And God actually gives them the answer to the question in Malachi chapter two. Here was his answer. Because you have been faithless to your wives though she is your companion by covenant. And so there was judgment coming upon the nation because they had minimized their covenant relationships and just treated them like it's a romantic relationship. We love each other, but maybe, it, maybe we won't always love each other and we'll love each other until we decide we don't and then we'll move on. No, God says, if you want my blessing, it's gotta be about the covenant. And so it's a holy covenant. It's initiated by God. You know, the great thing about that is understanding that if God was the one that brought us together, that we have resources to draw on outside of the marriage when our marriage gets hard. And you can go and you can tell God on your mate, God, did you see what this wife did that you brought to me? God, did you, have you noticed the poor performance of my husband? God, I want you to give me the grace to love this person that you brought to me. And God, I need you to help me. I need you to change us together. I need you to draw us back together. You put this thing together from the start. We wanna make it to the finish line. So God, we need your help. It's initiated by God. So I don't have the right to terminate it. It's initiated by God. Thirdly, it's conditioned on an irrevocable promise. Your vows and your marriage license serve as a public record that your marriage will be permanent and durable and make it to the end. Your promise creates a culture within the marriage of trust and faithfulness. And your promise will call you back to the one that you have promised to on the days when you are feeling like bolting from the relationship. And your promise expels fear in the person you married that you're ever going to give up on them. And so it's an irrevocable promise. Um, 
people come to my church all the time, new to Harvest, new to the Bible, new to the whole idea of God's biblical definition of marriage. And so we have to kind of help them understand this. I know you came out of this culture. This is what God says about marriage. And, and we, we're going to love you through it. We're going to be in that through the process. And so people show up at, at, at my church all the time who are living together and kind of pretending to be married. And, and, and they want to be members of our church. And, and at that point, we just look at them and say, hey, if you want to be a member of the church, then we want you to embrace our definition of marriage. And and so we challenge them. If, if you're living together, you've got two options. You, one of you, either, either you need to move out or you need to get married. And either option is accessible, but they'll say, but we're married in God's eyes. And like, no, you're sinning in God's eyes, okay? Um, but we're married in our hearts. We've been together for so long. I'm like, no, you're married in your pants. That's why you think that way. You think you're married, but that's not real marriage, okay? So let's talk about what a covenant looks like. There, there was a couple that came to my church a few months ago. Their names were Colin and Julie. And they came to a marriage conference, very similar to the one that we're having here. And, um, and we got to know them and we loved them. They loved us. They wanted to be members of the church. And, and we told them, you got two options. You can move out or you can get married. And so they chose to get married. And so on two weeks notice, this is what happened at the end of the 11 o'clock service. I said, everybody sit back down. And before we leave today, we're going to participate in a wedding. And so Colin came, uh, came up on the stage with me. You got that picture up there. Uh, you can throw it up there for me if you would. And, and at the end of the service, our whole church got to witness Colin and Julie making an irrevocable promise to one another to be married. And we celebrated. It was, it was part of a worship service for us. And it, it would be part of a worship service for you as well. If you want to work that out, you can come see Todd or the elders at the end of the service. And maybe we can get that done for you, okay? Go through a little marriage counseling. All that stuff. All right, so conditional and irrevocable promise to do what? To pursue oneness. Oneness is the bullseye. We're always going to be in process of pursuing oneness. What God has joined together, don't let any man separate. And so we're always going to be joining together emotionally, spiritually, even physically uh, in oneness. It's to pursue oneness with an imperfect person, okay? Anybody here marry a perfect person? Uh, no, but you thought they were, didn't you? Didn't you? And then about three hours later, you realize, you're like, whoa, what was this package that I just, you know, what promise did I make? And, you know, it's like, no, you married an imperfect person. And so there's going to be, you know what that means? That means that you are going to have to go to God for grace to forgive and forbear. And it will be the imperfections of your spouse that God will use as a sanctifying tool to get stuff done in you that never would have been done if you hadn't had to interact with this imperfect person. And God's gonna use the imperfections of your mate to actually make you more like Jesus, to show grace and forgive and to lovingly confront and work together. Condition on an irrevocable promise to pursue oneness with an imperfect person of the opposite sex. Do I need to spend any time on this? Okay. I, Todd, your pastor, did the best comprehensive series of messages on the whole same-sex question. I think that you guys understand that God's design was for men to play the role of the lover and the leader and the wife, to play the complementary role of the helper and the servant in the relationship because this man needs some serious help. He, he needs a strong, dynamic, creative, intuitive wife to come along and help him fill in his gaps. And together, God has a design of 
complementary roles in a relationship for a man and a woman of the opposite sex for a lifetime. At the end of your lifetime, you want to leave a legacy of love, faithfulness, forgiveness, and endurance to the generation of children that your marriage produced. And you don't want to say, don't do it like I did it. You want to say, follow in my footsteps and leave a legacy of a lifetime of faithfulness. Everybody wants that. A lifetime, and then finally this, for a lifetime for the glory of God. Listen to me. Your marriage right now is either displaying or distorting the glory of God. How about the glory of God's love? Unconditional, sacrificial love. When your children, when your coworkers, when your neighbors look at your marriage, do they see a reflection of the glory of God's love? How about God's forgiveness? When your children and your neighbors and your coworkers look at your relationship, did they see a reflection of the glory of God's mercy and forgiveness toward us? Or do they see a distortion of that? Every marriage will either display or distort the glory of God. That's what's at stake. That is the ultimate answer to the question, why does marriage even matter? It matters because the glory of God is at stake. Your marriage is a worship service to God. Did you realize that? More than what happens up on this stage when, when Jordan is leading, more than what happens when we're singing, your marriage is a worship event that will either display or distort the glory of God. So which is it? When people look at your marriage, displaying the glory of God or distorting the glory of God. Let me ask you to bow your heads for a minute. There's a lot packed into this message and I trust that God has spoken. I trust that you won't go out of here with a sense of guilt or failure, but hope and understanding. Maybe light bulbs went on. It's like, oh, that's what marriage is. I didn't learn that in school. Didn't learn that from my parents, but we just learned it from Jesus. And so now we're accountable. How will you respond Will you respond in faith and say, yes, Lord, I believe that marriage is something that you created, that you initiated, and that you have available to me resources of grace to endure. It's not going to be easy. You may be in a crisis right now. And that's why at the end of the service, the pastors and elders will be here. I'd love to pray for you through a situation, even to offer hope to you. Why don't we just ask God right now to, to come and intervene in our situations and our marriages. Father, thank you that you loved us enough to send your son to pursue our hearts, to win our love. And God, we just go on record that with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, we love you. And God, would you soften our hearts today under the weight 
of that reality. That God, you are love. And that God, you loved us even while we were sinners so much that Christ died for us. And so God, there is, there is gospel truth that reshapes our thinking when it comes to loving another person that's imperfect. So God, I pray for every marriage, I pray for every man that he would be strong and would step out and lead his wife in love, tenderness, in grace and forgiveness. God, I pray for every wife that you would be a a strong protector, that, Lord, you would give them the ability to, to encourage, to respect, and to follow the leadership of a husband that you've put in their lives. And God, we pray for our culture. Pray for the next generation, so many young people that are giving up on the whole concept of what we've talked about today. We pray you bring revival in their hearts. And for every individual here today that you would preserve and protect the marriages here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.